Welcome to JPAM's Closer Look podcast. I'm your host, Seth Gershenson of American University, and I'll be talking to leading authors published in the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management on a variety of timely policy issues related to healthcare, education, environmental policy, immigration reform, economics, and more. The Journal of Policy Analysis and Management is currently hosted by the School of Public Affairs at American University, which also generously supports this podcast. American University's SPA, or School of Public Affairs, is the number 10th ranked School of Public Affairs in the nation by U.S. News, the number 4th ranked school in public management, number 8 in nonprofit management, and number 16 in both public policy and public finance and budgeting. The chief editor of JPAM is Erdal Tekin, also a professor of public policy at American University. Hi, everybody. Our guest today is Dr. Lucy Schmidt, the Robert A. Woods Professor of Economics at Smith College and also a research associate at the NBER. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Seth. Yeah, I'm really happy to have you here and welcome to the podcast. Today, we're going to talk about your forthcoming JPAM article entitled The Effect of Safety Net Generosity on Maternal Mental Health and Risky Health Behaviors. This paper is co-authored with Lara Shore Shepard, who is the Kimberly 96 and Robert 62 Henry Professor of Economics at Williams College, and Tara Watson, who is also a Professor of Economics at Williams College. So this paper provides pretty compelling evidence of how social safety net programs both protect and even improve mothers' mental health. This is good for the mothers, of course, but it's also really important for their children, I'd imagine, and and I'm sure we'll get into that too a little bit. But let's start by defining some terms. First of all, a lot of the focus of your paper is on single moms. How do you define a single mother in your study? And how prevalent is single motherhood in the United States? Sure. So we look at unmarried women with children under the age of 18 in the household. They could be never married, divorced, or widowed. We also do include unmarried mothers that have a cohabiting partner in the household. Uh, And we do this because cohabiting partners in the U.S. vary a great deal in terms of the support that they provide families. In terms of how prevalent it is in the U.S., about 30 percent of women raising children at home are not married. Oh, wow. And in terms of the cohabitating, uh, that's part of why I asked about how you define single motherhood. I, I assume, like you said, there's huge variation in what a cohabitating partner is doing. In your data set, do you know much about the status of the cohabitating parent, if at all, if anything? We know a little bit. We don't do a ton with that in the empirical analysis. And, and that's partly because we believe that these single parent families, even if they have a cohabiting partner in the household, tend to be more similar to single parent families with no partner than they do to married couples. And the okay. outcomes for children in particular tend to be more similar to those of the single parents than to those of married parents. Oh, that's really interesting. Okay. And about a third of women uh, or or mothers, I guess, are are a single mother in in this sense. Is that, how do we compare to other high-income countries? I think at first blush, uh, 30% seems high to me. Is that, is that right? Yes, it's, it's definitely high. It's one of the highest. There are a few European countries that have higher rates, Sweden and Denmark, for example, But in those countries, it's much more cohabiting and much less likely to be alone. And that cohabitation tends to look a lot more like marriage in those Northern European countries than it does in the U.S. In addition, I think those countries also have many more governmental supports for families with children. And as a result, the U.S. has the highest poverty rates for single mother families. Roughly 30 percent of single mom families in the U.S. live in poverty. Oh, wow. Poverty alleviation, I guess, is is one of the goals of, of the safety net programs we're going to be talking about, which we'll get to in a second. But before we, we do that, the, the other sort of definitional question I had just from, from looking at the title of the paper is mental health. Mental health is, I think, losing the stigma of talking about it and gaining a lot of popularity and interest among researchers and policymakers. 
but it still is sort of this like nebulous term. So I was wondering how it, in your study, how is it measured? And is it different from f- things like stress or, and then how does it relate to risky behaviors and things like that? Sure. So we use a very specific measure of mental health. It's something that's called a Kessler 6 index. And basically the way it works is it takes a short series of six questions to measure psychological distress. So the questions look in practice something like, how often in the past 30 days have you felt sad or have you felt nervous or have you felt hopeless? Those are three of the six Respondents could respond all of the time, most of the time, some of the time, or none of the time. And the answers to those questions are then used to calculate this index. And based on the value of the index, you can come up with cutoffs for severe psychological distress and or moderate psychological distress. So you wouldn't use this to diagnose a mental health problem, but it's been shown to be a very good predictor of depression. Okay. And those cutoffs are are medically informed, I guess? That's right. And there's been lots of tests across different populations and different countries for the validity of the Kessler-6. So it's it's a pretty well-regarded measure. Okay. And then, so that's that's like a, I guess, self-reported by the mothers, sort of how they're feeling. And then- That's right. You're also going to look at unhealthy or risky behaviors- I guess, which are more uh, objective measures of something. What types of risky behaviors and unhealthy behaviors are are associated with mental health problems? And specifically, what are you looking at in your study here? Sure. So in addition to the psychological distress measures, we look at daily smoking as well as heavy drinking. Those are risky behaviors that have been looked at a lot in this literature. And sometimes people use those as mechanisms to deal with stressful situations. Both severe psychological distress as well as these risky behaviors do tend to be more common among single parent families than other families. Okay. So it's almost like binge drinking is a a symptom of stress or, or other mental health issues. That's one way of thinking about it. Yes. Okay. I guess that can affect the mother, but but that can also affect the children too, sort of over and above what, whatever mental health issues there were. So we'll come back to talking about the sort of how children are affected by all this. The one last definition to get out of the way uh, up front is the, the safety net. We've mentioned you know, your studies about the effect of social safety net programs. You mentioned the Nordic countries have pretty generous safety net programs relative to the U.S. What does the safety net program look like in the U.S.? My sense is that it's kind of a hodgepodge of different things. And so I'm curious to sort of hear your take on how well do these different safety net programs complement one another? Do they interact well? Or or is it like you get one instead of another. What does that look like in the U.S., especially for this population of single mothers? I think hodgepodge is a really good word to describe it. The U.S. safety net is a really, really complex system. So for this study, we focused on some of the biggest programs in the safety net. We look at TANF, which provides cash assistance to a small number of families, SNAP, which provides food assistance, Medicaid, which is public health insurance, And we're also looking at the earned income tax credit and the refundable portion of the child tax credit. Uh, So the tax credits and SNAP tend to be the primary ways we provide support for low-income families these days. But these programs interact in really complicated ways. So just as a couple of examples, if you get TANF cash assistance, that reduces the amount of SNAP benefits, food assistance that you're eligible for. But it's also the case that having access to one program can sometimes automatically make you eligible for other programs. So what we really wanted to do was take into account what happens when you add all of these programs up. Okay. And when the cash assistance offsets, say, the the food assistance from SNAP, is it like a dollar for dollar trade-off? It's not a dollar for dollar, but it's counted as countable income towards your eligibility and benefits for SNAP. So I think this is one of these kind of understudied things in this literature. We talk a lot about the different generosity of state programs, but because of this interaction, 
basically the states that are more generous in terms of their TANF benefits could be less generous in terms of federal SNAP benefits because of this offsetting effect. And and that's a good issue to raise. I guess one of one of the several ways the U.S. is different from from some of the other uh, higher income countries is that some of these programs are provided at the state level, others at the federal level. Which are which? Oh, that's a great question. So, it, it, like you said, it's a hodgepodge. Uh, so the tax credits are federal, although some states have their own earned income tax credits. SNAP is federal. The benefit formula is the same across all of the continental states. And then TANF and Medicaid are kind of federal-state partnerships in some ways. They There's a lot of federal involvement, but states have a lot of leeway, especially with TANF, in terms of designing the program the way that they want to. Got it. And what's the rationale of these safety net programs? I guess at a high level, maybe some of the, the rationale is obvious, but I think it's still useful to state it. But then at a more micro level, sort of how did we get to this hodgepodge? Uh, and, you know, is, is it just an accident or, or is there some reason for why there's multiple competing programs? Yeah, it's a great question. I think we could do an entire episode of your podcast on the evolution of the safety net and how we ended up with this particular system. I think the programs target overlapping populations and different needs, and they started at different points in U.S. history. They're rooted in these very different histories. If you were going to start from scratch, <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure you would not design it this way. Right. But it also means that the system is really complex, and it's complex for us as researchers to understand. But then you can imagine it's even more complex for families to navigate the system and to get the resources that they might need. Right. We had a, a an earlier episode, I think last year, uh, with Carolyn Heinrich at Vanderbilt talking about the administrative burden and, and challenges yes. that families faced trying to get benefits that they were eligible for. So that complexity certainly has consequences, whether they were those consequences are intended or not, I guess is a is a different story. Absolutely. And and that, that will come through in our work too, sort of the complications and the way in which the benefits that you're eligible for on paper don't necessarily translate to the benefits you get in person. Right. So taking a step back then in terms of the rationale for like why why does any country have any safety net program, you know, well designed or not, what's the goal of the safety net program at a high level? I mean, I think the goal is to provide resources to people in need, although different countries have different ways that they think about that. In the U.S., we've sort of historically tried to do most things through the market and only rely on safety net programs when uh, there's a market failure in place, whereas some of the other European countries have this much, much, much more a, as universal types of benefits, things that everyone might be entitled to, but based on a sliding scale for income, for instance. Right. So providing a, some sort of basic or minimum standard of living. Yes, for exactly. Everyone. Yeah. I'm assuming the U.S. is a little bit different from other countries in terms of being worried about the trade-offs or the incentives of of providing a more generous safety net program. I think that's correct. I think the debate in the U.S. is much more about the potential disincentives of these programs as opposed to thinking about the benefits. That's not entirely true, but more so than in some of the other countries. Okay. And disincentive to work. Yes. I mean, the, the people are debating work requirements for these programs as we speak, right? Right, so. right. And, and I think the, the work requirements are going to come up in, in your analysis a little bit in terms of calculating the benefits. So the study we're talking about today that's forthcoming in JPAM builds on some of your prior work, uh, which is very important work that, that creates what you call a, a benefit calculator, Explain to us briefly what this calculator is and, and what it computes and, and why it's so necessary to this type of research. Sure. So the idea of the calculator is to take what we know about families in survey data, things like their marital status, the number and age of their children, their earned income, things like that, and then figure out what they would be eligible for if they took full advantage of all of the available programs that we look at. 
including these interactions between programs that I was mentioning before. So as I mentioned, it's really complicated. Each state has its own rules. But the benefit of that is that we can learn something by either comparing across states or looking to see what happens when some states change generosity over time, but others don't. So like you already gave one example of how those interactions might work with assistance from one program offsetting assistance in another. What sort of data then are you feeding into the calculator? What type of data and, and where do you get that data? For this paper, we're using data from the current population survey, the CPS, which is a nationally representative survey of the U.S. population. So essentially what we're doing here is we're taking a set of families, thousands of families from this survey that represent the whole set of single mom families in the U.S., and we're running them through the calculator. And the, the thought experiment is we take these families and say, what benefits would they get if they lived in every state and in every year? So for instance, what would they get if they lived in Alabama in 2010? What would the same family get if they lived in Massachusetts in 2010? What about Alabama in 2016? What about Massachusetts in 2016? And what this does is it gives us a measure of how generous the rules are of the state, right, holding sort of the composition of the families constant at a particular time. So we can then take that and convert that into a single measure of generosity for each program, for each state, and for each year. So that's how the calculator piece of this works. For this paper in particular, the CPS does not have good information on mental health. So we take the output from the calculator, from feeding the CPS through the calculator, and we link that with a different survey data set called the National Health Interviews Survey that has detailed information on mental health and that asks the kind of questions that allow us to calculate the Kessler Index that I mentioned earlier. Right. And then I guess based on the time and location of a household in that second data set, you're kind of predicting what their benefits would have been. Right. So we're basically by state, by year, as well as by characteristics of the household. So things like the number of children you have, the education level of the mom. And we're basically, the way to think about it is we're trying to figure out what benefits someone like you would receive in your state and your year. Got it. And like we already said, many of these programs are either administered by the state or at least even if it's a federally provided program, states have their own sort of spin on it. I'm assuming that there's pretty good variation across states in what a woman would receive. Like even like like the same person with the same household type might receive very different benefits depending on what state they live in. Absolutely. So one of my favorite parts of this paper is actually the figures that we've put together to illustrate the variation. So we have maps that show sort of the overall variation across state at the beginning of our sample and at the end of our sample. But then we have these figures that show over our entire time period where that variation is coming from, like which policy changes for which programs and which states for all of the different programs that we study. So it, it, I think it really clearly illustrates the variation that we're using here in, in, our, in our analysis. Mm -hmm. I wish there was a way to show these maps uh, on the podcast, but I, I encourage everyone to take a look at the paper and look at the maps because it, it is, I think, fairly startling almost how much variation there is. Can you give us a sense of like, what are the outliers at either end state-wise? Like what are, what are the most generous and least generous states and how big is that material difference? Yeah. So I'm going to come back to this when I talk about the magnitudes of our study, but the number that I have fresh in my head is the difference between the 10th percentile generosity state in terms of the overall cash and food package versus the 90th percentile state. So the 10th percentile state is Georgia. The 90th percentile state is New York, and the difference in total benefit package between those two states is about $1,900. Okay. So, yeah, so almost 2000 bucks is a pretty notable difference. 
for a household that's the exact same, just depending on where they live. Absolutely. Particularly these families that are economically vulnerable anyway, and that have very low income levels, like in terms of a percent change, it's, it's a lot. Yeah. To give us a percent change, the the poverty line would be somewhere around like twenty or thirty thousand dollars. Is that depending on family size? Yes. Okay, so it's it's almost like a ten percent change, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so we have this calculator that we're going to use, and that's going to give us a sense of of how big the benefits are that different mothers would receive. And we already talked a little bit about this issue of just because you're eligible for safety net funds doesn't mean that you necessarily get it, both because there's there's a formal application process and some hoops you have to jump through to get it. And for a variety of reasons, not everybody can do that. But also there could be like conflicting programs where you might be eligible for multiple benefits, but once you claim one, you can't claim the other, I think. So in that sense, how much do we know about what share of the benefits go unclaimed? Yeah, a lot of them, I think. So in general, most of these programs have what we would call less than full take up, right? Not all eligible families are participating and I think there's a there's a number of reasons for this, right? Some programs are more difficult to access. You mentioned Carolyn's work on uh, administrative burden. Some people call that hassle. It can be really difficult to find information on these programs and to even know what you're eligible for. Some programs have stigma associated with them. So that this take up, the extent to which people are receiving the benefits for which they are eligible, really varies a lot by program and by household characteristics. So for our purposes in this study, we're really trying to keep it simple by looking at what we think you should be eligible for on paper based on what we know about you in the data set. But we can see that in our data, for example, if we estimate that you should be eligible for an extra $100 from a given program, on average, you're reporting significantly less than that. So like for instance, for SNAP, if we predict that you're eligible for an extra $100 in the CPS, you're reporting getting $53, almost half. And for TANF, it's even less than that. For every $100 we predict, you're actually reporting about $35. So, so there's a lot less than full take up of these programs. That number is startling, I think, to, to many listeners, probably, that only half is taken. I'm assuming that a lot of that sort of non-take-up support is on the intensive margin rather than the extensive margin in the sense that it's not like people are, are taking nothing. It's rather that they're not taking everything they could. I actually don't know about that. My gut instinct on this is that there's lots of people who are eligible that are not participating at all, but I haven't seen that. I'm sure someone's looked at that. I haven't broken that out myself. We do come back to this in the in the policy implications section of our paper. You know, if you're thinking about strengthening the safety net, one way you could do that would be to increase the benefits people are eligible for. But another way of doing that would actually just be to simplify the system so that people are actually getting the benefits that they're eligible for. Right. Very similar argument um, that people are making about the the FAFSA and, and Absolutely. college loan unnecessary complications. Yeah, we'll, we'll come back to that. Sort of having a sense that we know what people are eligible for roughly, we roughly know what they're getting, but it's rough in the sense that you're you're kind of predicting not just what they're eligible for, but also what they received. And you're, so if I understand this right, you're using this extra self-reported data to sort of cross-validate sort of how much, if anything, people received. Yeah. I mean, we're trying to do that. There's some issues that make that difficult. So on, on the one hand, in most of these data sets that look at safety net participation, it's very well known that people under-report benefits that they receive. 
So you can think of those numbers I gave you before as possibly being underestimates of what people are actually getting. I, I don't think that they're actually getting all of the benefits that they're eligible for, but maybe the actual number is somewhere in the middle. In some cases, you know, people are confused about which programs they're getting. Maybe they were on a program for a little while in the previous year and just don't remember receiving those benefits. So there's this underreporting issue that's 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 tricky. On the other hand, we also, in our analysis, don't really want to focus on what people actually receive because we worry that that could be linked to mental health in the other direction. So you could easily imagine, right, that a mom who has significant mental health challenges might not be able to navigate those complex systems that we talked about. So we really want to make sure we're measuring the effect of the safety net on mental health and not the other way around. So we really end up focusing on eligibility and not actual benefits received. And of course, this is really an imperfect way at getting at the lived experiences of these families. Yeah. So it's almost like what uh, statisticians or, or analysts might call an intent to treat estimate. Absolutely. That's exactly what we're doing. In some ways, it's not too dissimilar from a lot of literature that looks at these programs one on individually that looks at state level differences in terms of maximum benefits we're just in our intent to treat measure trying to capture both the benefits you would actually be eligible for given the formula but also how that interacts with the other programs right the way i think of intent to treat in layman's terms is just we're totally ignoring take up and looking at at the effect of the government or whoever providing something and, wh- and whether people take it, whether people use it, we kind of ignore and just look at does access or does availability of this thing affect your behavior? That's absolutely right. And with the further caveat that it's availability of it on paper and not necessarily how available it is on the ground. Right. Yeah, for sure. So when we come back to the policy implications, I guess another sort of radical redesign would be to sort of take up out of the equation entirely and just make direct deposits to people's accounts or mail them the cash directly or whatever and and sort of eliminate this step of, of take up. Right. I mean, that's essentially what the expansions of the child tax credit did. They went directly to families based on what we knew about the number of children that they had. So it it really did have much higher take up than most programs do. I guess because everyone has to file taxes. Right. Okay. So let's get into the the main results then. You have this intent to treat type estimate about the effect of predicted benefit eligibility uh, on mother's mental health. Uh, What do you find? What What are the headline results here? Sure. So I think our headline result is that if the generosity in your state, the benefits that you are eligible for from the entire safety net package goes up by $1,000, the probability that you experience severe psychological distress falls by 8%. We also, like I said, looked at smoking and drinking, and we find no significant effects on daily smoking. But more generous benefits do reduce heavy drinking, and the magnitude in terms of a percentage decrease is about the same. $1,000 leads to about an 8% decrease in heavy drinking. So our take on this is that the generosity can really make an impact. These, these effects are not small. They're, they're reasonably sized. This is one of those things where economists spend a lot of time figuring out things that perhaps if I try to explain this to non-economists in my family, they would say, oh, you give people money and they're better off. (laughs) Like, shocking. We know that financial stress and worrying about meeting your children's basic needs can impact mental health. So it does appear that the availability of benefits helps to compensate for that. Right. Again, regardless of, of how big you think that effect is, from the government's point of view or the economy's point of view, $1,000 is a fairly small payout in percentage terms. And if you're reducing severe psychological distress and or heavy drinking of single mothers of young children, the children are going to benefit a lot from that too, both in the short run and in the long run, I'd imagine. So there's 
There's a whole extra benefit there. Absolutely. And I think the other thing based on what we were talking about earlier with take up is that making people eligible for $1,000 is not costing the government $1,000 because of less than full take up. Right. It's probably costing them 500 if that. That's right. right. Yeah. So I said 1000 bucks is small potatoes from the government budget point of view. It's not a small or trivial increase for families at or, or near the poverty line. How typical is a $1,000 increase? I know, you, you, I know we already said that comparing the, some of the most to, to the least generous states is about $2,000. So how do you think about $1,000? Is it a, a big effect uh, or a big change, a typical change? How easy would it be to make that change? Yeah. So to put it in context, I think it's helpful to just talk about averages. So the average single mom family in our sample, we predict that they would be eligible for over $5,000 in benefits in a year, with about a half of that coming from the tax credits, the EITC and the child tax credit. $1,000 seems large, and it's definitely large relative to family income, but it's within the range of reasonable numbers based on the formulas for the safety net programs that we look at. And I, I do really like the comparison between the most generous and the least generous states. I mean, if you take that $2,000 difference between Georgia and New York, that says that moving from the least generous state to the most generous state would reduce severe psychological distress by 16%. There really are these large implications in terms of what it means to be a low-income family in some states versus other states. Yeah, for sure. 16%, that's almost one out of five mothers taking them out of this very severe and traumatic situation, possibly for the kids. The other thing I've been wondering as I've been reading your paper and and talking to you today is there are these different types of programs in terms of how the benefits are delivered. We said, you know, like the tax credit is kind of operating like a direct deposit, I guess, once a year in, in April or May. There's other programs that are providing food or basically debit cards that can only be used to purchase food. Other programs might provide cash directly. Does the the form in which the benefit is delivered matter much? Is one format more beneficial than the others? So when we break out the programs and look at the individual programs, controlling for all of the other programs that you're eligible for with those interactions, we find that the largest reductions in psychological distress come from the tax credits but we do find significant protective effects of SNAP and TANF as well. So the previous literature has found that the EITC improves maternal mental health, and we're definitely finding that as an effect. But we're also finding these protective effects from other programs. So we, we can't say much about mechanisms with our data. You had mentioned the fact that the tax credits come in a lump sum, and there might be reasons to think that 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 lump sum can be spent in ways that smaller amounts of monthly benefits can't. It could also be the case that take-up rates are different, right? That our measure of eligibility is better predicting actual increases in resources for the EITC and SNAP, for instance, than it is for TANF. I could definitely imagine that being the case. It's not like one is just useless. There's protective benefits for mental health here for all these different types of programs. Controlling for all of the benefits you get from these other programs, we're not finding effects of Medicaid. So we have a discussion in the paper about why that might be the case, what variation, what Medicaid policy variation we're able to look at here. But that's the one program where we're not finding consistent effects. Medicaid is a little different from the other programs in the sense that it's not providing any sort of financial benefits. It's really providing health insurance, right? That's right. Whereas with everything else, we're looking at dollar amounts. With Medicaid, we're really just trying to look at the fraction of the family that's eligible for Medicaid because there's all kinds of challenges associated with trying to quantify the benefits of that health insurance coverage, the families that get it. Yeah. 
And I guess you don't know in the data sort of like healthcare utilization rates or, or anything like that. We probably could have looked at that with the NHIS data that we use, but I think that is probably a whole nother paper. <laughs> right. It's probably very related to mental health in the first place. Absolutely. Yes. Right. Interesting. Okay. So we've kind of already danced around this issue of why these effects are happening in terms of like the mechanisms or the channels through which they operate. The most obvious one, I guess, to me at least, was this idea of, of mental bandwidth or scarcity just being if you're constantly worried about money, constantly worried about paying the electric bill or, or buying food, these types of programs ease that burden by taking that stress off the top of your mind. And, and then you can worry about other stuff like playing with the kids or taking care of your own self or whatever. Do you have any more thoughts about the mechanisms or sort of what you'd like to do in the future, studying mechanisms or things like that? Yeah. I mean, I'd love to be able to look more at what the benefits are spent on, because I think that would really help us get at these mechanisms that you talk about. Like we know that the SNAP benefits can only be spent on food. <laughs> There's a really great qualitative literature that interviews EITC recipients. And this point that you raise about scarcity, I think is a really good one because of the lump sum nature of the EITC refunds. At the time of year when people get those refunds, they can spend money on things that they would be unable to afford the rest of the year. And that qualitative literature really talks about some of those expenditures as being real investments. They, families can pay off debt, or they could purchase a used car, or they could move to a better neighborhood. So ways that the, the monthly safety net programs that we look at can't sort of alleviate that sense of scarcity in the same way. But in our data, we can't really say anything about that. It would be interesting to take the calculator to something like the consumer expenditure survey and, and see if we could figure out what the effects are on what people are actually spending. Yeah. And, and that does make me wonder if, not necessarily that they have to be separate programs, but, but there, there might be a benefit to providing sort of monthly assistance and more of a lump sum because they're, they're spent on different things and they might alleviate sort of different concerns or different problems. Yeah. And I think it's, it's hard to disentangle sort of the amount of the benefit versus the monthly versus lump sum. So if you think about, this isn't an area that I've worked on directly, but people who had looked at the recent child tax credit expansions which were both larger in magnitude, but also automatically sent monthly, right? So trying to, those seem to have had some improvements uh, uh, in mental health. But the question is like, is it the fact that it's more or is it the fact that it's monthly and how would it have varied if it was a lump sum instead? So I think there's some interesting questions to be, to be answered in that literature as well. Yeah, for sure. The other mechanism idea that, that came to my mind was that I believe that there's some evidence that working can, at least working in a, in a good environment, can boost self-esteem and, and improve mental health. And if some of these programs have work requirements, then that might be another channel through which mother's mental health improves. Is that, is that a plausible story? And, and which, if any of these programs, do have work requirements? Yeah. So so the tax credit programs and the time we're studying them are conditional on having earned income in the household. And since welfare reform, TANF has pretty clear work requirements, although they do vary a little bit by state. You mentioned that work can theoretically boost self-esteem, but I think the big if there is what kind of jobs are we talking about, as well as the fact that if these programs have work requirements. For most families, that's going to involve childcare costs, which are really, really high. So, so I think that the work is a mixed bag, right? It can have some benefits, but it can also have some costs. And there's a, a recent JPAM paper by Chris Herbst that looks at the TANF work requirements. And in that study, he finds that the TANF work requirements reduced children's test scores and one of the mechanisms that he finds there is that they, they increased maternal depression. So 
so I think I think it really it is a mixed bag. And I think this is something people need to be thinking about as we're debating more work requirements for programs that that haven't had as many of them. What we can say from our data is limited. We can say that any adverse effects that are coming from work are more than made up for by the increase in resources that are coming into the house. And, and are you able to look at, like you said, childcare is expensive. And if, if a single mom's going to work, then there has to be some sort of childcare. Is there any estimate of like, to what extent is labor market earnings offset by childcare costs? I don't have those numbers off the top of my head. I was just talking about this in my gender and economics class last week. I mean, the the share of income spent by lower income families on childcare in the United States is very high. Mm. Yeah, I, I could imagine that, especially if you don't have family around to, to help with that, it could eat up the entire paycheck almost. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Especially with really small kids where the, the costs are quite high. Right. Okay, shifting over to the policy implications, then you provide really clear and compelling evidence about how a program eligibility really for many different types of programs affects mothers' mental health and their risky behaviors. And these behaviors and, and, and the psychological distress among others not only you know harms the mothers, but also might harm child development and things like that. What exactly do we know about how these behaviors do map into children's well-being? I, I assume that there's a, a literature out there that that studies this pretty carefully. There is, and I think you know the evidence is pretty strong that bad mental health among moms is strongly correlated with a whole host of negative outcomes for families. There's evidence that poor maternal mental health is associated with worse parenting behaviors, as well as worse academic outcomes for children, worse psychological outcomes for children. So I think there's there's pretty clear links in the literature that that would be suggestive of improvements in maternal mental health spilling over to have positive impacts on children, although we're not able to measure those directly in our work. Yeah. But the benefits of early childhood educational success and cognitive and non-cognitive development are, are pretty well well documented elsewhere in terms of being a very valuable high ROI type policy and, and area to, to, to put public funds towards. Yes, absolutely. So in, in that vein, even very crudely back of the envelope, can we think about any sort of cost benefit analysis here? in terms of of what does another $1,000 of TANF or another $1,000 of SNAP gain us? So it's really interesting because we have some cost-benefit calculations in the paper. And thinking about them for this podcast, I actually wish we had done it slightly differently. <laughs> what, we, what we currently have in the paper are some calculations where we take some estimates from the literature on the cost of depression Based on those estimates, safety net generosity that would reduce depressive symptoms among these moms would have a non-negligible effect, but an effect that would not pay for itself purely in the direct effects on maternal mental health, right? But we're not, what we're not doing in that paper is we're not quantifying the improvements to child outcomes, let alone any of the other ways in which Previous literature shows that the safety net improves family outcomes along other channels. I think we sold ourselves short in the paper in terms of uh, of making, excuse me, making a stronger case for um, the cost benefit analysis here. In the paper, you're almost giving like a a lower bound cost benefit analysis that's kind of ignoring. I don't know. I don't know that calling them externalities is is, is right but ignoring these other benefits outside of the, the mother herself, I guess. That, that, yes, I think that's right. So we're ignoring the, the sort of the downstream effects on the children. But then, like, again, it's very narrowly focused on the mental health benefits and not looking at the other, the other things that the safety net is intended to do, right? Right. Even ignoring the downstream benefits on children, what does your cost-benefit analysis suggest? 
So depending on how you do the calculations, it suggests that improvements in terms of that cost of depression that we took from the previous literature would basically pay for about half of what, not what families are eligible for, but what they're actually getting, what the government is actually spending the money on. Okay. Half of the costs are are, are made up right there. And then I think it's pretty fair to assume then that if you did count the spillover effects to maybe the mother's family, to the children, then it very easily, the benefits exceed the costs by a ton. I I think it would not be implausible to say that. (laughs) But again, I have no direct evidence on that. So... Okay. Well, I, I will, uh, I'll step out on the ledge for you and, and, uh, okay. <laughs> make that <laughs> assumption. You. Cause I, cause again, we, I, I think we know the value of a, of a good education and, and stable household for kids yeah, and, absolutely. And, and those benefits are big. Okay. So the other question then, or, or I guess one of the last few sets of sort of policy implication questions I had for reading your study and also your earlier work about the calculator and things like that is given that there are trade-offs and complementarities and crowd-out type effects between all these different, between our hodgepodge of, of social benefit policies in the U.S., is it possible to think about like what is the right or the best combination of these different safety net programs? And, you know, if you had a magic wand and could sort of redo everything, would you take some away? Would you change how they interact with each other? Would some be consolidated? Like, what did we learn about sort of the the mix of safety net programs from your work? I think it's a really, really great question. You know, like I said earlier, if you were designing a safety net from scratch, you would never design the programs, the system that we have because of the way that it came together as such a patchwork. My fear in even speculating on that is that anytime people try to think about changing the safety net through the political process, mm-hmm. it often either gets cut more or becomes more complicated. So a program that we're not looking at here in this paper, but that I've worked a lot on before is SSI, Supplemental Security Income, which provides cash transfers to low-income individuals with disabilities and, and the elderly. And the political history um, on this program, I think, is really interesting as well. So in the early 70s, Nixon proposed a um, universal basic income (laughs) program. And the congressmen came back, particularly some of the Southern congressmen, and did not want universal basic income. So the compromise was that you got SSI, which is a federal program that essentially was trying to provide a universal basic income-like program for certain groups of the poor that were considered to be deserving, those with disabilities and, and the elderly. But putting that federal system in place and replacing all of these widely varying state programs, I think in some ways actually made things more complicated. So I think it's it's hard to think about how you would go back and restructure things differently. What I would say, though, is I think there's a lot that we could do to simplify the process of getting assistance. And there's some different experiments that states are doing in terms of having sort of one-stop shopping for safety net programs or a way in which your application information for one program could be automatically transmitted to another program. I think that one of the things that pretty clearly comes out of our work is that many people just don't access the benefits that they're eligible for because it's so time consuming and so confusing. And you know, if we're thinking about these low-income single parent families, they face so many challenges that we could do much better at getting them the support that they need. We shouldn't think of accessing these benefits as being yet another complicated thing that they have to negotiate. Right. Yeah, no, full, full agree on, on that. Related to that then, what general advice would you give to a few different groups? First, the policymakers who are designing policies at the, at the state or, or federal level, are there any pointers or, or things that you'd like them to keep in mind? And then more on the front line, sort of on the ground, what would you tell 
you know, local administrators, social workers, the people that are directly interacting with folks who are receiving benefits from the safety net programs, uh, what, what advice might you give them? Sure. So at, at the high level, if we're thinking about the policymakers, I think we really hope that the conversation just does not focus on the costs of the programs. It's really easy to get caught up in how much we spend. It's really easy to measure costs and those costs we're incurring right now. But it's really clear that there's these benefits like improved mental health that are harder to measure the benefits of that occur now and are also incurring in the future. We should be really thinking about those benefits as well as we're making policy. In, in terms of like on the front line, I think a lot of these administrators and social workers are doing what they can in terms of providing information to people about the, the set of programs that they might be eligible for. But again, I think this goes back to the policymakers. How do we reduce the administrative burden? How do we streamline these processes to make it easier for these families to navigate the safety net? Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I think that's a, a good close to ending point. We're about out of time and, and it's been really fascinating and, and nice to chat with you today. Is there any like one main take-home point you'd like to leave our listeners with or maybe one issue or point that we didn't quite get to in our discussion? Sure. So I think the thing I would like to make sure that the listeners take away is that there's a lot of numbers here, but these numbers represent real people. These are real families, real moms that are trying to make ends meet and that are trying to do the best thing they can to take care of their kids. And these safety net programs can really make a difference in their day-to-day -day lives. So it's not just putting food on the table, it's all of these other benefits as well. So I think that's what I would like people to take away, that the safety net really has these benefits, both for these very real families and also for society as a whole. Full agree and, and, and well said. Our guest today has been Dr. Lucy Schmidt, the Robert A. Woods Professor of Economics at Smith College and a research associate at NBER. Thanks again for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. This was fun. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of JPAM, the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management, in conjunction with American University's School of Public Affairs. Please follow us on the APAM website and search for the JPAM podcast.